Hello and welcome to this episode of Very Cold Lasagna. I am your host, Dylan Lasagna. Welcome to today's episode, wherever and however you're listening to this podcast, whether it's on YouTube or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, and Google Podcasts. This show is your safe space for the most filthy casual takes on the world of pro wrestling and sports. Today, we got a special show for you all today because we're going to be reviewing SummerSlam. Yes, WWE SummerSlam. Wait a minute. Didn't, didn't Dylan, you're probably thinking, didn't you review this show a couple weeks ago when they were in Nashville, Tennessee? Yes, I did, actually. But no, we, we're going to be reviewing SummerSlam again. And what do I mean by that? Well, we're going back in time. I haven't done these this, these kind of shows in quite some time. But we're going to be going back in time all the way back 20 years ago when I was just 5 years old. When, when I wasn't even a wrestling fan yet. We're going back in time to 2002 where things were really interesting. Yes, when WWE had SummerSlam 2002. Yes, it is the 20th anniversary today of SummerSlam 2002 in the Nassau Veterans Coliseum in Uniondale, New York. And man, it's already been 20 years since that uh, crazy, crazy event that many wrestling fans have built as the greatest SummerSlam of all time. And well, I, I, of course, like I said, I was only five years old. I was still in my, my kindergarten days of you know my, my livelihood and I didn't become a wrestling fan until third grade, so <laughs> fortunate me. But you know, as a as a wrestling fan today, and when I as I grew up, I like to go back watch the old stuff now and then. And well, this is why I decided to do that here today, and give you a special retro view in the old icebox, which we haven't visited in quite some time. So, with that being said. Before we get into this review, um, into today's episode, I do want to encourage you to go and follow all the social media pages of Very Cold Lasagna on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Very Cold Lasagna, and listen to the show however you can, wherever you get your podcasts. So, with that being said, let's get into this 20-year anniversary of the 2002 edition of WWE SummerSlam. And I gotta say... You know, looking back at it in 2002, like even though I was only five years old, <laughs> it was a year, really interesting year, not just for WWE, but the whole year in general. There were like some really good movies like The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers came out, Harry Potter, The Chamber of Secrets. My, my personal favorite, the original Spider-Man 2002 with Tobey Maguire. Yes, that movie um, series will still be my favorite Spider-Man. And then, of course, you have that Star Wars movie. Yes, Attack of the Clones, I'm talking about. Those movies were dominating the, the industry. And then there were video games coming out at that time, um, mostly dominated by Nintendo, like Super Mario Sunshine, Metroid Prime. But then, of course, you also had um, Grand Theft Auto Vice City uh, also come out that year. But personally, that was my least favorite Grand Theft Auto game um, when, I, when I later played it in my, my life. But... And that's besides the case. And then you also had, in sports-wise, in relation to this channel, the New England Patriots and Tom Brady and Bill Belichick beginning their long, long dominance over the NFL. They won their first Super Bowl together in Super Bowl 36 over the St. Louis Rams and created a lot of what-ifs what for the greatest show on turf in that Super Bowl. What if the Rams were the one to overcome the New England Patriots? So... Either way, the the Patriots would begin their long, long dynasty over the NFL. So going back to the WWE, 2002 was kind of like a transitional year for 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 them because well, they were done with the invasion angle, which we covered here um, last year, and they 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 were having they had a loaded roster and. A lot of the, the, the mainstays from the Attitude Era were getting older. And, well, look, a few of them were departing from the company. And some of them were also coming back from serious injuries, such as the case was with Triple H. He suffered a torn quadriceps injury back in 2001, which caused him to completely miss the invasion. 
Um, so he returned shortly before the Royal Rumble and won the Royal Rumble in 2002. And then he would go on to win the Undisputed Championship at WrestleMania 18. Meanwhile, at that same event, The Rock and Hulk Hogan had their famous matchup at WrestleMania 18. And then, like I said before, that roster got so big because early, late, early last year, Vince McMahon, the then owner of the, the WWF at the time, he purchased WCW and ECW that, well, there was, there was just simply not enough TV time for everybody because the roster was just too big. So to counter that, the company would, would do something that they never really had done before. They split up the entire company in half. They created the brand extension, something that you see today, even though we, they don't really have the large amount of wrestlers <laughs> currently today that they did in the past. So with this brand extension draft, wrestlers, commentators, uh, referees, and any other essential talent were pretty much exclusive to Monday Night Raw and SmackDown. And they were also later given general managers. So while it didn't necessarily take effect, like full effect until like the mid-2003s, it still kind of was a notable like time. It was kind of a notable transition away from the Attitude Era, away from the invasion angle, and into a new period. But before we get into what exactly that period was, um, you couldn't help but thought at, at that time, whether you're a wrestling fan or you're revisiting this period, what happened to the two biggest stars that helped WWE win the war against WCW in, I guess, to a degree, ECW? Well, of course, we're talking about The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin. For The Rock, well, he was at the point of his life where he was getting his acting career started. He was he starred in The Mummy Returns, and he got his first lead role in The Scorpion King as Matthias, a.k.a. The Scorpion King. So he was getting his acting career started. And after WrestleMania, he took like a three-month three month break from wrestling to go on this promotional tour for the movie he was starring in. And yeah, when he came back like a couple months later after that promotional tour, some fans kind of took notice of his eventual part-time status and they were getting mad. They were getting at The, the Rock selling out to Hollywood um, which became the catalyst for something much bigger later on for Mr. Rock. Meanwhile, for Stone Cold Steve Austin, his fortunes, unfortunately, were not that great either. Um, and not to either, but in comparison to The Rock, his fortunes were not that great. Because a lot of things were going bad for him uh, personally and professionally. Uh, his personal life was not that great. Um, he would get into this highly publicized domestic dispute with his then wife Deborah um, and that ended a divorce in a year a year later professionally behind the scenes in WWE he had a lot of problems he had a lot of problems with the creative direction both his character and where the WWF was going at the time um, he didn't want to like fight Hulk Hogan at Wrestlemania 18 and it was later revealed that he didn't believe that it would stylistically work and I don't know how that made sense, but it is what it was. And a lot of like Austin's problems, like, you know, having that short match with Scott Hall at WrestleMania 18. And then the biggest problem Austin had was having to put over in a hotshot match that wasn't properly built up at the time to the rising star in Brock Lesnar in a King of the Ring tournament match. So all, all these factors, along with, Austin's like mental state, his personal life at the time, that led to him walking out on WWE. And in response, all they can do was, well, say thank you, but also bury him on national television in June of 2002. So while they did manage to, while they did manage to like put aside their differences, resolve their differences towards the end of the year, it was an ugly situation. Um, for, for Steve Austin in the WWE in 2002 when it came to their issues. So speaking of the WWF, they lost that loss. They lost a lawsuit that was filed by the World Wildlife Fund, and well, they 
change, they have to change their name to, well, the name that I mentioned just a couple seconds ago, and the name that many of us know today, the World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE. So they're in this new period. They're transitioning towards the period that Austin's refusing to get into. And what exactly is that period? Ruthless aggression. So what exactly is ruthless aggression? Well, there was a lot of less focus on like these politically incorrect storylines or like like more less controversial um, characters, but there was more focus on the wrestling based aspect of the show. So a lot more like not too, like not too many longer matches like you see today, but there was a lot more focus on the wrestling aspect of the show. So that brings us to a head to SummerSlam 2002 in the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Uniondale, New York. This took place on August 25th, 2002. And most people remember this show for two matches. The Rock versus Brock Lesnar or Rock versus Brock. And of course, Triple H versus Shawn Michaels. One of these matches featured like a passing of the torch of sorts and the other featured a comeback of the ages. But what about the rest of the show? Like, even though this is, for mo- for some people, this was a two-match show, while others considered this the greatest SummerSlam of all time, what about the rest of the show um, that, well, people did, that felt like this was the greatest SummerSlam of all time? How did it, how did it stack up? How did it fare? Well, we're about to take a look at it as we delve deep Back into the old icebox for this retro review of SummerSlam 2002. So we kicked things off in, in the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum with a pretty great match. Pretty great opening match with Kurt Angle going up against Rey Mysterio. So my, my favorite uh, wrestler ever. Um, he made his first ever um, WWE pay-per-view debut on this night. And going into this match, well, Rey Mysterio signed with WWE in June of 2002. And they were really hyping up Rey Mysterio with a lot of vignettes. And a month later, he made his debut on SmackDown, beating Chavo Guerrero and having this huge, like, his early defining moment jumping off the steel cage um, in a match where Edge and Edge, uh, I think it was, no, Edge and Chris Jericho were fighting. And he just jumped off the cage. Uh, onto both of them, and it was just a phenomenal moment. So he got into this feud with Kurt Angle, and Kurt Angle was really doubting Rey Mysterio. He was, he would just insult him, and Mysterio would continue to do these like like sneak sneaky and smart uh, tactics to throw Angle off his game. So going into so in this match, this is really this was a great match. Um, it pitted Rey Mysterio's high athletic. Uh, Lucha Libre style speed against Angle's technical wrestling ability and Kurt Angle did a really masterful job selling Rey Mysterio's um, high speed offense so well Rey Mysterio like executed all of his moves really well and what I liked about Rey Mysterio uh, first match like pay-per-view match was that he made it so unique like he went <laughs> like rather than go out, do his entrance, he he the cameras cut to Mysterio behind Angle and he did a Huracurana to to begin the match. So that was that was pretty cool. Um but where where they did very, very well for me was the finish. Um Kurt the Kurt Angle countered a Huracurana from the top rope. Uh, he managed to slip out of it and lock in the ankle lock. And he promised to break Mysterio's ankle, and that's exactly what he did. He forced Mysterio to tap out and win the match. So sure, Kurt Angle um, won the match in Rey Mysterio's um, pay-per-view debut, but Rey Mysterio looked really good. Um, he looked very strong in his performance. So after after this after this matchup, Kurt Angle would go on to feud with Chris Benoit, and then be forced to team up with, <laughs> with Benoit. In the tournament to crown the first ever re-envisioned SmackDown side of the WWE Tag Team Championships, where they would beat 
Rey Mysterio, and Edge at No Mercy. And meanwhile, for Mysterio, he would go on the team with Edge. Um, and then while they would lose to Angle and Benoit at No Mercy, they would beat them later in a two of three falls match on, on an episode of SmackDown before they lost the titles at Survivor Series. But either way, both men would go on to have really good WWE careers um, towards the future. So the first match on the Raw side of things with Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler was Chris Jericho going up against Ric Flair. Now, this was an interesting time. Ric Flair still like, like was in the WWE and he, he was feuding with Chris Jericho um, who jumped from SmackDown to Raw because he didn't want to work with Stephanie McMahon, of course. That being because, well, he was aligned with Stephanie earlier in the year and now that Stephanie was kind of like this pseudo babyface general manager, he was like, no, screw that. <laughs> so Jericho made his way to Raw, attacked Ric Flair after his matchup with The Rock. And then going into SummerSlam, they just continued to beat the hell out of each other. And then uh, the six days prior to SummerSlam of 2002, Ric Flair would completely disrupt Jericho's Fozzie concert. Uh, Fozzie is like Jericho's band. And he would destroy all the equipment of Jericho's like concert. So that was an interesting visual. So as for the match itself, um, it was it was pretty solid. Um, it was pretty all right. But <laughs> the only thing I could like, the only thing that I thought about this match was how red, how red Chris Jericho's chest was going to be by the end of this match because for most of this match. Ric Flair was just chopping. He was just literally doing the knife edge chop all over Chris Jericho's chest. That was, it was like a one move offense for Ric Flair all match long. And I mean, the crowd, the crowd loved it, which, which I liked even more. They were like, woo, woo, woo. But like, damn, <laughs> I was just thinking how red is, how numb is Jericho's chest going to look towards the end of this match? But for the most part, Jericho um, carried the veteran Ric Flair. He bullied him. He targeted Jericho, uh, not Jericho, Ric Flair's injured back. Um, Jericho would even lock in the figure four on Ric Flair. And he did manage to make him tap out. But some controversy ensued when Ric Flair did tap out. But it was at the same time he already reached the ropes when he hit the, when he did, got the ropes for the rope break. So Jericho is furious, um, and then behind the referee's back, Ric Flair would hit J Chris Jericho in the dick with a low blow and then lock in the figure four to tap out Y2J with, the fig with his figure four. So it was a pretty solid match. I mean, nothing, like, too crazy. Um, I, I was just laughing at how red Jericho's chest was going to be um with all those uh chops to his to his chest so <laughs> i was just like damn how many chops is it going to take so you know after this pay-per-view the two would meet again at unforgiven um uh, this time for the intercontinental championship um but jericho would get his return win make uh rick flair tap and retain the title over flair um for jericho after this um after unforgiven he would lose the intercontinental title to kane um a week after Unforgiven, and then he would form this on-and-off tag team with Christian where they won the World Tag Team Championships. For Ric Flair, um, after Unforgiven um, and after SummerSlam, he would assist Triple H that same night in his World Heavyweight Championship match against Rob Van Dam and become his manager. He would turn heel, become his manager, and that led to the creation of Evolution with Randy Orton, and Batista. So while this match wasn't necessarily, you know, well, the best at SummerSlam or like in general, it did lead to some, some really crazy things down the line for both men. Edge versus Eddie Guerrero going back to the SmackDown side. Honestly, you know, there wasn't really too much of that backstory for this matchup other than, you know, Eddie Guerrero getting jealous of Edge and his rising sea of popularity. And other than that, you know, when I was looking back at like scrolling through some of the episode of SmackDown leading up to this uh, pay-per-view, uh, 
you know, I really couldn't find much. I really couldn't find much on this feud with um, Eddie Guerrero and Edge. But either way, and this was still a solid match. Um, and there was some solid storytelling as well, like with Eddie Guerrero trying to disarm Edge and his injured, previously injured shoulder. Uh, Michael Cole and Taz did a pretty good job here as well, bringing that up. Um, the reason why Edge had that um, previously injured shoulder because um, he he legitimately injured it um, in a steel cage match um, after Judgment Day against Kurt Angle. So um, Eddie Guerrero also got a little creative too, um, doing a variety of moves um, to injure to to injure Edge and literally try to dis uh, disarm him as well. He even did like a frog splash, um, on, not onto Edge's like onto Edge's chest, but onto Edge's injured shoulder. So that's pretty creative. But in the end, Edge managed to fight back, hit Guerrero with the spear, and win the match. So I mean, pretty solid match. Um, I do I do feel like it kind of dragged a little too much, um, with Eddie trying to like prolong the match a little too much. But other than that, pretty solid way for Edge to overcome the odds and get a victory over Eddie Guerrero. So both of these men would fight each other two more times. Um, they traded victories at Unforgiven, and then in October on SmackDown, Edge would come out on top of the feud. Going back to the Raw side of of SummerSlam, we had the WWE Tag Team Championships, the uh, the un the unbranded Tag Team Championships, Christian and Lance Storm of the Un-Americans going up against the oddball comedy team of Booker T and Goldust. So. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I actually liked, like, when I went back and uh, prepared to do this show and I watched the Un-Americans, like, in their short time together, like, watching their, their promos, their vignettes, I actually <laughs> I actually dug this group. I, I don't know why. Maybe because a lot of what they were saying um, about bashing America. I mean, sure. I I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty neutral towards uh, America today, but... Damn, they were really, um, they were really brutal. They really got some heat um, against the American fan base. And the, the whole basis on on the Un-American stable in WWE was that they weren't um, pro-Canadian. They were anti-American. They were against the the country's, like, upside-down beliefs. Like, Christian mentioned something about how um, people couldn't, they, they people couldn't, um, like they could eat big, they could they prefer to eat Big Macs over reading and writing and watching their favorite site, but they couldn't, but they couldn't like recite the Bill of Rights or something like that. And hence, like when Tess often came out with them, he carried an upside down, uh, U.S. flag that symbolized America's upside down beliefs. So. I honestly thought, I honestly thought that um, <laughs> the uh, the Un-Americans were a a pretty interesting group, and they definitely made some interesting points back in the day. And if they were in, I, I got I'm gonna be a little controversial here. If they were in, if they existed in in the WWE or any in any professional wrestling company today, they would make some decent points as well in addressing. Addressing some of the topics like in today's America. Now I get I get it. it was a weird time for them to make this stable because well it was only only less than a year that 9/11 happened, and we'll get to why did it why they broke up so shortly. But yeah, it, it, they they definitely addressed some interesting points. So going back to this matchup, Christian and Landstorm won the the tag team titles. In July at Vengeance, and then later they went to Raw. Meanwhile, around this time, Booker T just got kicked out of the NWO. Um, their failed version of the NWO, which had not Hulk Hogan, not Scott Hall. I mean, they still had Kevin Nash, but rather than have Hulk Hogan and Scott Hall uh, around this time, because Hulk Hogan left um, to be to be a face again, Scott Hall got fired. But no, they had the Big Show. X-Pac, and Shawn Michaels. So, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so bad. And Mooker T, he previously rejected Goldust's help 
But after he got kicked out, he went to Goldust to combat the NWO and then later the Un-Americans. So overall with this match at SummerSlam, this was a good tag team match. Um, they got some good early tag team offense from both teams. It clearly showed that they had, they had chemistry with one another. And Christian and Lance Storm brutally took it to Goldust for much of this match. It was a, basically a two-on-one two-on-one onslaught that got the crowd really heated on them. And they, they, did, a, they did a really good job um, trying to prevent Booker T from getting to Goldust. And every time he got so close to getting tagged in, Christian and Lance Storm would do a good job of preventing Goldust from tagging into his partner. Make, it made the anticipation for uh, getting Booker T in this match more exciting for the fans. And then when he finally got that tag, the crowd was like, the crowd was going wild. They popped so hard for Booker T. And once he got in that match, the pace just quickened. It, it picked up to a big time degree. So Booker T and Goldust were like getting, getting to that point of, man, it seems like they were going to win the tag team titles here. But then when the referee was down, a test came in. He hit a big boot on Booker T with the referee down. And then Christian just slimes his way in and pins uh, Booker T to retain the, the tag team championships for the Un-Americans. Now, retroactively, I would have loved to see um, Booker T and Goldust win the belts because they were at the height of their popularity, um, especially Booker T. Um, but considering that the Un-Americans were still red hot as well as a heel group, I mean, it kind of made sense for them to retain at this point as well. But more on the Un-Americans in just a second, because there were some interesting facts about this group that will make you question, oh, why, why, why did they only last this long? So for Booker T and Goldust, they're gonna they were continuing to pursue the the now renamed World Tag Team Championships for the rest of 2002. They eventually won them at the end of the year at Armageddon. But they quickly lost them back to the Un-Americans. Uh, this time, they had, instead of Christian or Tess, Lance Storm had William Regal. And Goldust and Booker T split at Goldust's request, so Booker T could challenge Triple H for the World Heavyweight Championship at WrestleMania 19. But that was a match that Booker T lost. And as for Goldust, well, he would leave the company at the end of 2003, when Booker T would go on to have various feuds um, in the mid card, and then he would make his quickest. He may, it would make a slow descent back to the world title scene by 2006. There was also the Intercontinental Championship match between Chris Benoit and Rob Van Dam. So Invisible Man won the IC title from Van Dam a few weeks prior on Raw, but since it was considered open season, since Mr. McMahon mentioned that if Raw superstars were unhappy with the general manager, Eric Bischoff, they can go to SmackDown. And vice versa with Stephanie McMahon, if SmackDown superstars were unhappy with her, they can go to Raw. So Benoit decided to take advantage of this open season on wrestler contracts and go to SmackDown and take the Intercontinental Championship with him. But the board of directors still required Benoit to defend the title against a Raw superstar at SummerSlam. And... On the go-home show, Van Dam beat Jeff Hardy in a number one contenders match to get that title shot. So, in this matchup, I, I like the touch that to promote this interpromotional matchup between SmackDown versus Raw, they had the two ring announcers, um, Howard Finkel for Raw and Tony Chimmel for SmackDown to announce both Van Dam and Benoit to keep this brand warfare competition um, going. Because at the time... Um, they were really heavily promoting the brand split um, between Eric Bischoff and Stephanie McMahon. So they really get gained that going in 2002. And for for this match in general, I mean, it was it was an okay, it was a good match. I I thought though it kind of dragged a bit because I thought this match was gonna end sooner than I thought it would because Benoit missed the diving headbutt, and I thought. Van Dam was going to end it right there and there with the five-star frog splash. But then the match 
kept going when Van Damme missed the, the frog splash. And then Benoit kept going, grounding uh, RVD with his technical wrestling. And then when he pushed Rob Van Dam off the turnbuckle in, into the barricade, which injured RVD's shoulder, it, it just kept going. It dragged a little, but, I mean, it was what it was. So Benoit tried to lock in uh, the Crippler crossface and tried to make RVD tap or pass pass out. But Van Dam um, fought it off. He was resilient. Um, he he countered a, a top rope German suplex from Benoit into a crossbody. I thought that was a really cool finish. And then he won the IC title, brought it back to Raw with the five-star frog splash. So overall, I mean, the match was kind of... It was kind of, it was kind of good. It was, it was kind of slow, but in the end, the, the finish really paid off. So for Benoit, he would return to SmackDown um, and begin a rivalry that I mentioned already with Kurt Angle, and he would form this. He would form this tag team, which included, um, which included both of them becoming the tag team champions um, on the SmackDown side. Meanwhile, for Rob Van Dam. He would become Triple H's first ever challenger to the World Heavyweight Championship. But he would lose the IC title in that feud um, thanks to Triple H um, prior to Unforgiven. Where he would also lose that world title match thanks to Ric Flair. So by this point of the show, after Kurt Angle versus Rey Mysterio, things were... I'd say it's pretty solid. Like, almost, almost good. But... For me, it, like the crowd, the crowd was kind of was mostly into it. But when I when I watched it, I was like, "All right, things were kind of simmering down a bit." And the latest example of that was the Undertaker versus Test of the Un-Americans. Now, as I mentioned before, the Un-Americans jumped to Monday Night Raw, and they would also attack the Undertaker to make a statement. Um, the Undertaker would exact his revenge a week later, chasing off the the anti-Americans in a police motorcycle. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so basically this whole feud was about Taker defending the honor of America against, well, the un-Americans. <laughs> so overall this match was, well, pretty simplistic. I mean, Undertaker got in some early offense. Tess kind of made like a potential, like potential threat at an upset um, with his, with this big man, big man moves, but in the end, the Undertaker rallied back, overcame Christian and Lance Storm, and Tess tried to win with the big boot, but um, he got a near fall, and he tried to win the match again, but Taker would win it one, two, three for America with the Tombstone Pile Driver, and celebrated with the fans with the real American flag, with. For the honor of America. So, I mean, pretty sh very the shortest match of the night. And honestly, it, it, was, it is what it is. And it's pretty simple, straight to the point. Um, honestly, this match honestly could have served better on, on Raw or something. But in the end, it, was, it is what it is. So, going back to the Un-Americans. Um, yeah, going back to the Un-Americans. They they went on to feud with Booker T and Goldust, but now Booker T and Goldust had some backup. They had Kane, they had Bradshaw. This was when Bradshaw wasn't JBL, John Bradshaw Layfield yet, and they also had Bubba Ray Dudley. And the reason why they recruited so much backup, well, it was because the Un-Americans, um, they decide they continued to try to burn the upside down American flag, and. The baby faces were like, you're really going to do this to America. You're really going to deface, destroy the, the beliefs of, of our good country. So the Un-Americans eventually got a new member in William Regal. And he was like the only non-Canadian. He was the, like the only uh, British person in the group. So at Unforgiven, the Un-Americans were defeated by the group of Booker T, Goldust, Kane, and Bubba Ray Dudley, and that began the downfall. That began the downfall of this un-American group, because they would lose the World Tag Team Championships to Kane and the Hurricane, 
And then they would have a bunch of other losses as well. They would fight amongst each other and the group would go bye-bye. So Christian would form a new tag team with Chris Jericho. Um, Tess would turn babyface. Um, he would take on Stacy Keebler as his manager before he left WWE in 2004 and um, um, sadly passed away in, uh, a couple of years later. Re- and William Regal and Tess, uh, not Tess, uh, Lance Storm would continue the lineage of the Un-Americans, but as a tag team before it permanently disbanded in 2003. Now, overall, I would say the Un-Americans had the potential to be like one like the the biggest heel like heel groups like even though it was kind of like a jobber group but i do digress um to to many eyes but i do think that they could have generated a lot of heel heat um at the time especially considering that well yes technically they were they were formed at a time where america was still trying to recover from 9-11 and i do agree with that but it was revealed by bruce pitchard on his podcast in 2018 that yeah, it exactly confirmed, like, everyone to believe that everyone, well, except for William Regal, they did not like doing the Un-Americans uh, gimmick. Um, they were pretty uncomfortable with it. Um, and like I said, they, it was at a time where it, it had only been less than a year that the Un-Americans formed. It was only been less than a year that since 9-11 uh, happened. And it, it was a awkward time. Uh, to form that group, they were afraid of the heat. Um, they were afraid of the the booze, the the host the hostility. That whatever they said that was gonna be like anti-American or un-American, whatever they they were gonna say, um, that would would have like represented their group. They were gonna be they were afraid of what was gonna happen in response to that from the fans. So I can't really blame them for ending the Un-Americans Act so so abruptly. Um, I, I'm just I still wonder though how would that would work in 2022? I mean, because I do believe that um, had had that gone on just a little longer and had they had Christian, Lance, Storm, Tess, you know, had they been you know a little easy, a little more easy, and I get I kind of get their understanding of how uncomfortable it was on the whole un-american stick maybe it could have had someone else do it but the un-americans were like kind of a team with so much potential with so much potential to garner heat and win in more like more titles like tag team titles per se maybe not main event material but dominate the tag team scene so Kind of like some lost potential for the Un-Americans, but it is what it is. Meanwhile, for The Undertaker, um, he would move on to SmackDown, feud with Brock Lesnar over the WWE title, but come up short um, each time he each time he met with Brock Lesnar. And then he would have his last feuds as Biker Taker um, with The Big Show, John Cena, Lesnar again, and Vince McMahon before being buried alive by Vince and Kane before returning as the dead man at WrestleMania 20 against Kane. So this is where the event really starts to pick up, at least in my eyes. This is where the event really starts to get juicy. And that is, of course, the first of two big matches that SummerSlam 2002 will be remembered for. And that is the unsanctioned match between the good friends, better enemies, Triple H and Shawn Michaels. Now, In case you don't watch wrestling or you're not really familiar with this rivalry, let me give you the TLDR version of it. Triple H, Shawn Michaels have known each other since 1996 when they were a part of the clique with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. One year later, they formed the original D-Generation X, a group of degenerates that would, well, break the rules and stick it to the man. But then at the 1998 Royal Rumble, a in January of 1998, Shawn Michaels severely uh, broke his back during a casket match with The Undertaker, um, landing in the wrong spot. And then after WrestleMania 14, with his title match with Steve Austin, he went into retirement for four years. Meanwhile, for Triple H, he took control of Degeneration X, made it more popular than ever, and then he embarked on his own singles career, 
that included four WWF title runs. So, four years later, um, Triple H is in the height of his uh, face run in 2002. Shawn Michaels comes back as part of, again, WWE's failed NWO experiment. And after Vince McMahon decided to, you know what, we're, we're done with the NWO, they decided to have Michaels um, go on, successfully try to convince Triple H to join Raw uh, at Vengeance. And then the next night on Raw, they too seemed like they were going to reform Degeneration X. It was going to be like good old times on that fateful July, uh, I think it was July 22nd, 2002. But then, out of nowhere, Triple H turns on his best friend and hits a skyscraping pedigree. I mean, you got to see that pedigree that Triple H hits on Shawn Michaels on that fateful July 2002 night. And then that served as the beginning, the genesis of their long, long rivalry. Because in the weeks leading up to SummerSlam, Triple H wanted to prove that Shawn Michaels was a has-been, is old, he can't wrestle anymore. And he did so by smashing Shawn's head into a car window. But that didn't stop Shawn Michaels from challenging him to a fight at SummerSlam. So here we are in this unsanctioned match. And my God, watching it again um, in 2022, 20 years later, it's still phenomenal. It's like one of the best examples of actual legit storytelling. Not the not the crazy spot fest that you see. Um, where you literally have to guess where the heck the storytelling is, where the heck um, the characters are. This is the actual wrestling right here. This unsanctioned match right here. Jim Ross, Jerry the King Lawler were absolutely fantastic. Um, guiding the viewer, guiding the audience the, on the journey, begging and pleading Shawn Michaels just to just give up and the suffering. And then, like, when Triple H was dominating the match, um, trying to cripple Shawn Michaels with a variety of backbreaking moves. And then when Shawn Michaels was on the comeback train, when he was hitting all these high-intensity spots, like the signature kip-up, diving through a table onto Triple H, flying off the ladder with his patented elbow drop, Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler went through the highs of HBK make, when he made that comeback. It was, it was incredible. It was incredible. And then you, you even had the referee, Earl Hebner, stepping in at times too when Triple H tried to take things too far, when he tried to literally kill HBK in the middle of a match. So this match was literally all about Shawn Michaels not only trying to get revenge on Triple H, but him just having to survive the onslaught that he was getting from his former best friend. So... This whole match, Shawn Michaels may have like been away from the ring for four years, but he did not miss a step. He had no signs of ring rust. And sure, yeah, he could have said that oh, this was not a regular wrestling match, and and didn't need to be. Like this was like the prelude to what was to come for the next eight years for Shawn Michaels. So he won the match with a reversing the pedigree into a jackknife fruit roll up. But Triple H would go on to have the last laugh on, on this night, on August 25th. He hit Shawn Michaels in the back with a sledgehammer. And then he whacked him in, near the neck of Shawn Michaels' back. And that put him back on the stretcher for the next couple of months. So this was such an amazing match to go back, revisit. And this set the stage for a variety of things for both of these men. Uh... But more importantly, it set the stage for their long rivalry. It also set the stage for their eventual reunion in 2006 for Degeneration X. It also set the stage for Shawn Michaels' second coming and his comeback from 2002 to 2010. So after SummerSlam, Triple H went on to become the world, first ever World Heavyweight Champion in WWE. Um, and, well, I know some people are going to be like, Oh, this began the reign of terror. This became this, this is when Triple H became God. Oh. So that, that was because, well, people thought that way because Triple H would frequently beat out fan favorites um, like Booker T, Kane, Goldberg, HBK, and Randy Orton in the span of two years um, to either win or retain the World Heavyweight Championship. 
um, when all those guys were like literally at the height of their popularity. So, <laughs> so make it what you will for Triple H um, after SummerSlam when he became the World Heavyweight Champion. So he would also begin the group Evolution with Ric Flair, Orin, and Batista. And like for the most part, Evolution was pretty successful. They did hold all the all the titles on Raw. But for the most part, they were just there to basically help Triple H stay World Heavyweight Champion. And, well, they eventually figured that out. <laughs> for Shawn Michaels, well, he made his full-time return to the ring, uh, starting at Survivor Series, winning the first-ever Elimination Chamber match and World Heavyweight Championship against Triple H and a variety of competitors. And, yes, he did manage to lose it back to Triple H at Armageddon at the next pay-per-view. He went on to have a great second act of his career. That included matches of the year candidates against Chris Jericho and The Undertaker years later. So both of these men um, went on to have this long rivalry ending at Bad Blood in 2004 in a Hell in a Cell match. Pretty fitting. And then they would go on to reform The Generation X in 2006 to make Vince and Shane McMahon's life a living hell. So best friends better enemies, this match was the beginning of it all. And finally, we're here at our main event of the night in, in the Nassau Veterans Coliseum, and that is the undisputed WWE Champion that you can smell, The Rock, uh, going up against the upstart Brock Lesnar. The Rock versus Brock in this epic main event clash of epic proportions and this match was a pretty big deal at the time Brock Lesnar debuting the night after Wrestlemania 18 and he's been on a dominant warpath ever since like that point he won the King of the Ring finals against Rob Van Dam he beat the likes of Hulk Hogan and Edge to to make it to this point at SummerSlam against The Rock meanwhile Yes, The Rock went on to beat Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 18, but he was gone for um, three months since that point doing promotional work for the Scorpion King. And when he came back, he won the Undisputed Championship against Kurt Angle and The Undertaker at Vengeance to set up this match against Brock Lesnar at SummerSlam. And for most of the for the most part, Brock had gotten the upper hand on The Rock, whether it was like getting his hands on The Rock, or playing simple mind games with them. So, this match meant everything for both of these men. For, for Brock Lesnar, it was trying to establish himself as, well, as the nickname um, was at the time, the next big thing. For The Rock, it was establishing himself as, well, one of the greatest, at, if not the GOAT of WWE, despite his ascending... Um, popularity in Hollywood. So this match, you know, still holds up as a really good, um, really good SummerSlam main event, not for like the in-ring stuff, but like how would it serve long-term? Because Brock was very dominant in this match. Um, and even when he gave The Rock some offense, it wasn't very long. It wasn't very long um, as his. And I do question though how like how they they paced this match because they they didn't and how they like like choreographed this match because the referee had many chances to eject Paul Heyman out of the match but like there were like three times where Paul Heyman got involved and the referee like the referee was just like no 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 you can't be you you can't get involved in this match like why don't you just throw them out why don't you just throw out Paul Heyman like why are you keeping him around but I mean, I guess that was rectified with the fact that The Rock put him through the announce table with The Rock Bottom. So, I don't know. So, The Rock nearly put Brock away with The Rock Bottom and almost got the people's elbow in. But after a flurry of reversals, Brock finally finished off The Rock with an F5 that would submit him, at the time, the youngest world champion in WWE history. So... This match was, well, I guess you could say um, not the greatest of all time, like in terms of everything that happened, but this match was very, still very important. This match was all about cementing Brock Lesnar as his nickname entailed, the next big thing. 
the next franchise star for WWE at the time. And in a main event match against one of the best in the business, he delivered. He absolutely delivered in dominating fashion against The Rock. Now, another notable thing about this match was how pretty much the, the entire, most of the fan base in New York in that, in that Coliseum was turning on The Rock. They were they were booing him. Um, and the fans basically like were pro Brock Lesnar from start to finish. And they were they were they were chanting for Rocky at first, um, like for like the first good minute of this match. But then as the match proceeded, they threw their support towards Brock Lesnar. And it you clearly visibly see if you watch this match, the Rock was getting pissed. He was getting absolutely genuinely pissed. He was he was butthurt. Like I I don't know if I I don't know if, like watching it like at first, like years ago, that the rock was just like, like playing around. But no, he was seriously upset at the fact that the fans had seriously turned on him. It was like a classic example of what wrestlers today are dealing with. But as I will get into later, the rock eventually handled it, the situation pretty well. Um, so after SummerSlam, the rock would cut one of those impassioned promos, try to cut it, one of his impassioned promos um, uh, to the to his people, but the fans in the Nassau Coliseum would re- would try to reject them. So The Rock, from that, who had promised that he was ending Sing Along with The Rock. So by ending Sing Along with The Rock uh, when SummerSlam went off the air, that would lead to the genesis of what arguably is the best version of The Rock in 2003. Hollywood Rock. A sellout, selfish, asshole-ish version of what he had become, which paved the way for his return in 2003. And under his Hollywood persona, he would go on to beat Hulk Hogan in a WrestleMania rematch at No Way Out and finally beat Stone Cold Steve Austin at WrestleMania 19. And yes, while he would lose to Goldberg in at Backlash before he went on to take a hiatus, Hollywood Rock was legendary. He would go on to cut on, cut these fantastic promos, bashing the fans, bashing um, what each and every city that he went to, degrading the fans for practically turning on him, um, and he just he sold um, the fans turning on him very well he took that like beef the fans had on him and made it into like an exceptional character um in 2003 when he came back as hollywood rock and let's not forget the the rock concert the first ever rock concert before wrestlemania and like how can you forget like the sacramento queens baby <laughs> so the rock um, he would make occasional appearances after Backlash, and he would revert back to his uh, babyface uh, status. Um, and then years later, he would go on to face John Cena at WrestleMania 28 and 29. And then, well, will we get that match with Roman Reigns at WrestleMania 39? We'll see. For Brock Lesnar, he would become exclusive to SmackDown um, and... Keep this keep the WWE Championship on SmackDown, which led to Eric Bischoff creating the World Heavyweight Championship for Raw. Now, Brock Lesnar would hold the title until Survivor Series, where Paul Heyman would betray him um, and align with the Big Show. He would go on to win uh, two more WWE titles um, at WrestleMania, and I think on I think it was like SummerSlam. No, it was I, I forgot which pay per view it was the next year. So, either way, Brock Lesnar would hold two more WWE title runs um, before he left in 2004 on unceremoniously at WrestleMania 20 uh, for a failed NFL run, but a more successful MMA career and UFC career before he went back to WWE in 2012, where he is now. So, overall, this match served as, like, at the time, it was a passing of the torch for The Rock. To Brock Lesnar, um, and, and while well, it turned out it didn't turn out to be the the torch that Brock Lesnar would carry, it was this was still a very important match. This was still a very important main event because it needed to serve as 
whether Brock Lesnar could deliver, whether he could be ready to handle that torch as the main guy in WWE. And on that night, he absolutely nailed it. So before I get into my final thoughts on SummerSlam 2002, there were a couple of other notable things that happened um, on this night. Stephanie McMahon and Eric Bischoff, who were the general managers at the time, the first SmackDown and Raw general managers, um, there were a couple of segments involving them where they were just watching the show together um, just to promote the um, brand warfare rivalry. Um, there, there was also a cutaway segment at the World in Times Square where Cruiserweight champion Jamie Noble was hosting a makeout session with his uh, girlfriend. And that, that was kind of weird. And then there's one final segment um, that I want to touch on where after the Triple H versus Shawn Michaels match, um, Howard Finkel was in the ring and he had this self-loathing segment. And I honestly like don't remember at all at any point Howard Finkel being a heel. So I was like, wait, what? Why is Howard Finkel in the ring to announce the next match? But rather than that happening, Howard Finkel, um, he was basically out there um, praising himself um, just to kill time for the main event. And then Trish Stratus comes out, and Howard Finkel mentions how Trish Stratus slapped him a couple weeks ago on Raw. And Trish Stratus apologized, gave him a hug, but that was just like a setup because Lillian Garcia... Um, came out and attacked uh, the Fink for taking her job. So, I don't know. That was just kind of weird. That was kind of like a weird thing that happened um, throughout the night with like these, like, I guess you could call it cool-down segments um, to get the fans out their mind before, like, the next match. So, it is what it is. So, overall, SummerSlam 2002, is it the greatest SummerSlam of all time? I'd still say yes, but... I mean, I, I thought that the undercard had plenty of solid good matches like um, that defined the early portions of the ruthless aggression. So, of course, the two money matches um, stole the show. For, it still steals the show for me. HBK's comeback, um, both audibly and visually, um, um, were still amazing to me. He was willing to do whatever it takes to exact revenge on his once best friend, even if it killed if it killed his uh back. And then the main event served that passing of the torch, even though it ended up not being one at the time. From the Hollywood sellout in The Rock to the next big thing in Brock Lesnar, these two matches absolutely um, delivered on expectations, and they had a, a solid undercard to back that up too. So. Well, yeah, a couple of the matches on on the undercard didn't necessarily resonate with me. I can still understand why people call this the greatest SummerSlam of all time. Um, I still think it's a great SummerSlam. Don't get me wrong. I just don't, like, I don't know, like, where I can say a SummerSlam is greatest. Like, I can't really rank a SummerSlam. But I will say that it was a great SummerSlam um, because... Um, not just the obvious show stealers, but of the aftermath uh, that these wrestlers, these groups, these stables wound up dealing with. I feel like the long-term um, effects of these matches, like going back to retro review these uh, pay-per-views, is more interesting to me than the matches itself. Because what happens afterwards <laughs> ends up being pretty interesting. So overall, I thought SummerSlam 2002 um, was a pretty... A pretty great event and also a very important one too in the history of professional wrestling so that is it for this episode of very cold lasagna and thank you for tuning into this special retro review episode commemorating the 20th anniversary of the 2002 edition of wwe SummerSlam. a great but also more very important uh, event in the history of wwe what did you guys think about this SummerSlam in particular whether you watched it for the first time way back in 2002 when it happened live or you watched it sometime like when you watched it retroactively. Let me know your thoughts on each and every match that happened or a particular match in general from this pay-per-view event. So let me know your thoughts about the 2002 edition of WWE SummerSlam. But that's it for this episode of Very Cold Lasagna. I am your host, Dylan Lasagna. Thank you for tuning in to this fine, fine episode episode number 114 of this icy yet spicy podcast 
Make sure you listen to the show wherever you can and however you get your podcasts. And follow the show on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at Very Gold Lasagna. And as always, keep that lasagna in the fridge with your takes on the world of pro wrestling and sports. And until next time, peace out.